You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. Well, good evening, church. Good to see all of you here. Some time ago, late last year, I was reading part of Julie Andrews, her memoir. She released at least a second volume last year, and it's called Homework. And this volume is on the Hollywood years. And so she begins this book about her um, early childhood years in England and how she would travel and uh, she was involved in singing. She'd travel with her mom and her stepdad and a really pretty fascinating book. And she, at age 15, she was cast in Little, Little Red Riding Hood and all the things she did. And then she eventually moves to New York City and she begins performing on Broadway and it's a very demanding career, but she's enjoying it, and she's staying in touch with, with her uh, family back home. Well, she had a friend named Tony Walton who came over, and, and Tony had been a friend she met back in England, and their, their friendship blossomed and turned into romance. They fell in love, and Tony and um, Julie were married in the late 1950s. They honeymooned and working vacation in Los Angeles, and then Julie was performing on a Broadway musical called Camelot. And while she was doing that, she met a man behind the stage who you've probably heard of. His name was Walt Disney. And he said, hey, I'm working on this musical called Mary Poppins, and I want you to play the leading role. Now, she had never done film before. She had been a singer and a theater performer. And so she said, hey, that, you know, I'm overwhelmed. That sounds great, but I'm pregnant. And uh, he said, that's okay. We'll wait. And so they waited, obviously. And she had their, their baby, Emma, and um, off she went to film Mary Poppins. So, as you know, it was a very big hit, and uh, her career just took off. She won an Oscar for that. She then did The Sound of Music and a number of other films. Well, Tony, Walt Disney hired Tony to, do the, the, to design the principal sets and costumes for Mary Poppins. So, as you can imagine, his career took off as well. But Tony was more interested in theater than he was film. And so because of that, Tony would spend most of his time in New York and London, and Julie was out in Los Angeles with her daughter. And they would trade back and forth, and their careers intensified and had demands. And because of that, they were physically separated, even though they were still married. Well, Julie knew this was affecting their marriage. And she wrote in her memoir how uh, at one particular time, they had spent more time apart that year than they had together. And she knew okay, this is not good, something probably needs to change, yet they were unwilling to change anything. She enjoyed all the invitations that were coming her way, and she just couldn't say no, and so they tolerated their demanding careers at the expense of their marriage. And Julie admitted that she was a large part of the problem. She would love to be the the loving wife that Tony needed and deserved, but she felt like, I just can't turn down these opportunities. Even though she had loneliness, depression, all of these things were going on. But instead of working on their marriage, Julie and Tony kept working in their careers, and their marriage didn't make it. Before long, a guy named Blake Edwards came along who He directed Breakfast at Tiffany's and Pink Panther and a number of other things, I believe. He came along, paid attention to her, and they fell in love, and and they got married. And uh, they tolerated their careers instead of working on their marriage. Now, it's surprising what we will tolerate sometimes, isn't it? You know, we'll schools sometimes tolerate cheating. Businesses sometimes tolerate unethical behavior. 
Sometimes parents tolerate disrespectful children. Couples tolerate sometimes abuse from their spouse. And some churches even tolerate false doctrine. If we're honest, there's something about toleration that it's an illusion. We think, well, we'll just tolerate it. Either it'll go away or it'll just produce unity. Somehow we'll just get along. That's the illusion of tolerance. And so tonight I want to talk to you about the tolerant church, the tolerant church. Last time we were in Revelation, we talked about the compromising church. That was the church at Pergamum. The church in Thyatira was the tolerant church. Man, they were a loving church. You know, if, if, you, were, if you were a citizen at Thyatira, you would, on the outside, you would think, man, this is a wonderful church. I think I would love to be a part of this church. But they were a tolerant church. And so my wife has said some, some time ago in the context of parenting, what we allow will continue. What we allow to happen is what will continue. And it's just, it's, it's, it, whatever we tolerate will continue. And that applies to the church as well. Whatever we tolerate here is going to continue to occur. So let's look at the church at, at Thyatira. And there's things that, um, this of course applies corporately to the church, but there's things in our lives that we tolerate as well. And we may not even, re- even realize it. Things that we've just grown accustomed to, things that we tolerate, that maybe the Lord wants to put his finger on tonight and speak to our hearts about it. So Jesus had a message for the church at Thyatira. So this is Revelation 2, and uh, beginning in verse 18, and goes down through verse 29. Now Thyatira was located 40 miles southeast of Pergamum. It was on the road to Sardis. This is really pretty interesting. It was the smallest of all these seven cities, okay, of all the seven churches of F, of, um, of Revelation in ancient Turkey, or uh, modern-day Turkey, ancient, ancient Asia. It was the smallest and has been called the least significant of all the churches, yet it has the longest letter. Isn't that interesting? Jesus had more than 200 words for the church at Thyatira. The smallest, least significant church he had the most words for. He had um, over 200 words. And we don't know much about Thyatira because there's a modern city built right on top of it. Now, there is one little window of, of, of area about 60 yards long, 40 yards wide, where there's some excavation work. But there's not many ancient writings about Thyatira. They can't really do a whole lot of excavation work there. So we don't know a whole lot about it. We do know that they had very good roads leading to the city. And because of that, it was, a, it was a small business center. There was a lot of trading that happened in Thyatira. And the most common, they had, and because of the trading, they had all these various organizations or, or guilds. You've heard the term a guild. A guild is just simply an organization of like-minded people. And um, there was all these different guilds in the city. You remember in the book of Acts in chapter 16, Paul was in Philippi, and it says he met a woman named Lydia who was from Thyatira, and she was a seller of purple goods. So even she was a businesswoman, and she had come from Thyatira. So Thyatira was small and may not have been seen as significant, but it was an industrial center, and so it was a trading center. And uh, there were other traders there, like potters and bakers, tanners, wool and linen workers. This is interesting. Each worker, no matter what your trade was, you were normally part of a guild associated with your profession. So if you were a baker, you were in a baker organization. If you were a tanner, you were in a tanner organization, a potter, so on and so forth. So they had this economic and social pressure to be a part of these organizations. 
They were not required to, but, you know, it would probably hurt their careers. It would hurt their social status if they didn't engage in these organizations. They, so they had pressure. So the, the town of Thyatira was divided into small squares, and each one of these squares was controlled by one of these trading organizations. And so each, each trading guild had a religious life of its own. They professed loyalty to a particular god or goddess. So if you were a baker and you were part of the baker organization, they had a particular religion that they, false god that they worshiped, and they would hold these feasts. And at these feasts, there was food, the sacrifice to idols, there was immorality there. And so, you know, as a Christian, you would think, well, I don't want to be involved in that, but I feel this pressure because this is my profession. And if I want to make a living, this is just something I've got to do. And so all of this was going on in Thyatira. Now, the primary god worshipped in Thyatira was Apollo. Apollo was the sun god. He was the son of Zeus. And there was a temple built to him there. And so this is just the background of Thyatira. It's really pretty interesting. And so Jesus comes and has words for this church. He says, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira, and, and we've said, I've said before, I believe that's the pastor of the church in each of these cities that, that Jesus is speaking to, uh, to the angel there. Uh, and I find it so interesting. Every time Jesus talks to a church, he has different things to say. And we have to know the background of the city to interpret what he's saying. So he says, the words of the Son of God. In other words, Apollo was the sun god, and he was worshipped there. And, uh, but Jesus said, no, these are the words of the Son of God. There's no one else higher. This is, this is the, the King of kings and Lord of lords. This is the Son of God talking, who has eyes like a flame of fire. And we think that's probably a word, a word play on Apollo. Apollo is the sun god, but yet Jesus has eyes like flames of fire. And those eyes are also penetrating. Those eyes also bring judgment. Those eyes are discerning. And so that Jesus is able to see and know everything about us that we'll see later in this passage. His feet are like burnished bronze. Burnished bronze represents strength. It's, it's unbending. It's, it's immovable. And so he's saying, you know, citizens at Thyatira, you may be tempted by all these false gods around you, but these are the words from uh, the one who is immovable, the God who doesn't change. These are the words from the Son of God. So pay attention is what he's telling the church. Pay attention. This is, this is not just from Apollo, for some false god. These are words from the living God. Now, Jesus tells them five different things that they're doing really, really well. Uh, he, he commends them. He says, I know your works. And these works, he gives five particular works that they're doing very well. Works describes the totality of their Christian life. Now, we know we're not saved by works, but once we are saved, we should produce good works. We're created for good works, as Ephesians 2 said. So um, that this, this church was very good at that. Jesus said, I know your works. And the word know there's, I know intimately and I know completely, just as in the other other churches. I know everything about you, church. I know everything that you're doing. And so he lists five things. The first one is love. I know your love. This, this, is, this is the agape word for love. This, this church was strong in its love for God and its love for other people. Th- that was not mentioned in any of the three previous churches. Jesus didn't say, I know your love. Remember, there was one church that had a problem with love. You remember which one that was? 
the church at Ephesus. Remember, he said, I know you've done this, 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 but you've lost your first love. That's the same word for love. The only two times agape appears in Revelation is here at the church of Thyatira and the church at Ephesus. So he's saying the church at Ephesus, but they did a lot of great things. They didn't have love. This church was a loving church. This church is completely the opposite of the church of Ephesus. It was a loving church. It was a warm church. If you would have gone there, you would have felt welcome. You would have felt love. You thought, man, these people care about me. They love Jesus. Uh, Man, that's where I want to worship. They also had faith. Man, they trusted in God in spite of the pagan culture they lived in. They were faithful to Jesus. Third, they were a serving church. He said, I, I, I know your service. The word service refers to menial task of practical support. Man, they weren't above doing anything. You know, whatever it took, uh, they were going to serve. And, and I see you as a, as a church that serves. I think about Sundays when there's an announcement, hey, can you guys help with chairs? The next thing you like, Three minutes, all these chairs are gone. You know, they're stacked up in, in uh, however high we do them, five or six. And, and it's just like that because you're a serving church. And a number of you, your life group leaders, you're serving in children. We've got adults upstairs working with students. We've got people next door working with children. And, and that, that's who you are. You're a serving church. And, and, and this was a serving church. And um, I appreciate a serving church. And then he says, he said they had patient endurance. They had patient endurance. It refers to a capacity to hold in the face of difficulty. It means fortitude, perseverance. Man, what a, what a great quality. The verbal form of this implies self-mastery. It means they, had a, they were expectantly waiting. They had patience that was motivated by hope. The Apostle Paul connects this term with, you know, in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 3, he said, steadfastness of hope. That's that word, steadfastness. That, that, that's what this church had. It wasn't just an earthly hope. It was a hope that one day Jesus is coming back. And so because of that, in spite of the, the, the paganism around them, and they were, they were patient and they were enduring because they knew Jesus was coming back. And so they, their hope wasn't built on their trading guild or their profession. It was built on Christ. The, the, the bodily resurrection awaits all of us one day if Jesus delays his return. And so the final, uh, personally, is my favorite of all these, okay? He says, and that your latter works exceed the first. Man, your latter days are better than they were when you first got saved. You are doing more works now than you were 20 years ago when you got saved. Is that true of you? If you think, are you sharing the gospel more now than you were when you first got saved? Is there more joy in your life now than it was when you first got saved? Is there more peace? Is there more just the fruit of the Spirit? Is there more evidence in our lives now than it was 20 years ago or whenever it was, or a year ago, whenever it was when you got saved? That applies to us personally, and it, provide, it, it applies to us corporately. There ought to be more of the fruit. There ought to be more works that, to honor God in our life now than there was at any time in the past in our Christian life. We ought, and we ought to be giving more to the Lord of our time, of finances, all of that. But it ought to be true of us corporately. Valleydale's has some great days, but the best is yet to come. We, we can look back and say, man, those are some high water marks. And we've talked about some of those in our leadership meetings. There have been some great days and we rejoice 
We celebrate in those days, but we also believe, man, the best is yet to come. So, because as we grow and become more like Christ, man, our better days are always should be in front of us. So he says, church, you have this going for you. Your latter works exceed the first. That means they're much more than the first. And so, man, what a great quality. Um, one thing that I've found that is helping me spiritually, I like to change up the type of Bible that I'm reading through in my devotion time. Okay, so New Year's Eve, I finished, I was going through uh, Dr. Swindoll, Chuck Swindoll has a study Bible. I finished going through that. And then now, uh, Courtney ordered me, the, um, Tony Evans, Dr. Evans has a study Bible, just was released in November. And I love that Bible. I started New Year's Day. Got my dad one for Christmas. So I've started New Year's Day. I'm going through Dr. Evans' study Bible now. It's a different translation than what I was previously reading. Study notes are fresh. And um, I love it. So I've, I've, found, I've been through David Jeremiah and Charles Stanley, uh, John MacArthur. I've been through those. And there's just a freshness about it. Every one of those has a different translation. I'm, and I write notes in there to, to, uh, to our children. So this one's for our youngest. And one day we'll give it to them. But it, keep, it keeps me fresh spiritually. It's, it, there's just, that's just one of those things I enjoy doing. So maybe you have something like that too. Uh, and I'm also reading, the pastor gave us this um, 52 Hebrew words that every Christian ought to know. And so I'm reading through that every morning too. It's just a little short devotional. The one yesterday was on the word for water. Uh, this has nothing to do with my sermon. It's not even in my notes. But it's, it's the word... Um, but uh, pastor does it, so I guess I can do it too. Uh, it's the word for water, which means chaos. And it talked about Jesus. It talked about the Sea of Galilee. If you visit the Sea of Galilee, you don't see a lot of resorts around the Sea of Galilee. You don't see a lot of lake houses. Because in the Jewish mind, they wanted to get away from the water because the water meant chaos. And so uh, it's not like we see water and go, man, let's build a house by the water and let's enjoy the view. Not, not for the Jews. But it was on that lake where Jesus went walking on top of the chaos. And it was talking about how when there's chaos in your life, it is under the feet of Jesus. He is walking on top of that chaos. Um, so there you go. That was, it encouraged my heart yesterday. So, uh, but Jesus had something against this church. After all those five things, they were doing really well. Verse 20, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel that you tolerate that woman Jezebel. What, what is that talking about? Well, first, let's look at what does tolerate mean? It's in the present tense. They continually tolerated this woman Jezebel. Tolerate means to leave, to leave it to someone to do something, to let go or to allow. It conveys a sense of distancing through an allowable margin of freedom. So I'm going to tolerate, I'm going to allow you to do this, and I'm just going to back up. I'm taking my hands off of it. They tolerated Jezebel and allowed her to teach false doctrine in the church. It was the sin of tolerance. That's why the church of Thyatira is a tolerant church. They gave her freedom, and she abused that freedom to push her agenda in the church. She referred to herself as a prophetess, prophetess. Now, the gift of prophecy, it's, it's in 1 Corinthians 12, 28. It, tells, it says that God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets. Now, there were instances in Scripture of women who had the gift of prophecy. Okay, Acts 21, 9 and 1 Corinthians eleven five. 5. So because of her gift, 
when she would just utter these spontaneous words of God that were given to her, it was not seen as on the same level of scripture, but it was taken seriously. And so because she said, hey, I'm a prophetess, they thought, oh, okay, well, you, you, you speak for God sometimes. So we're going to elevate you into a position of leadership. Now, we don't know if her name actually was Jezebel. Perhaps it was. But the point is, is to connect her. Remember, there's a woman in the Old Testament named Jezebel. Remember her? That was King Ahab's wife. And she, uh, she helped propel him into evil, into Baal worship. She had a major influence on her husband. 2 Kings 9.22 refers to Jezebel and sorcery. And um, 1 Kings 21.25 says there was none like King Ahab, who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord, um, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. She was behind it. She was, she was, she was pushing him, pushing him towards it. And, and, um, and so that's what's happening here. You have this woman named Jezebel who is pushing this church into uh, immorality, as it says here. Seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, eat and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So the idea is that she was inviting these church members to, remember I said there were these trading guilds and they had these feasts. She was inviting them to these feasts saying, hey, it's okay to go. It's okay, enjoy. Just just engage in whatever's happening there. And they thought, well, hey, she's a prophetess in the church. She says she speaks for God. So, you know, I'm already tempted to go to these things anyway. So, okay, it must be fine. And so the term for seduce is used for Satan elsewhere in Revelation. In Revelation 12, verse 9 and 20, verse 3, it can also mean to deceive. So Jezebel is seen by Jesus as a satanic force in this church, even though she proclaimed to be God's spokesman, spokesperson. And so this, they gave in, at least not everyone, but a lot of people in the church gave in to what she was saying. They tolerated the evil. In order to keep their status in the community, their job, they thought, well, I, I've got to go to these things. And she's, she says it's okay. So, yeah, that's what we should do. And so verse 21 is a picture of God's mercy. Look at, look at verse 21. Jesus says, I gave her time. I gave her time to repent. But she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Refuses is, is in the present tense. Like she just keeps refusing and keeps refusing and keeps refusing. It's the idea that someone went to her and says, ma'am, you know, uh, what, what, what you're doing, what you're saying is, is not, is, is, is not congruent with the word of God and uh, it's sinful. And she, and she just refuses. Well, I'm not repenting. I don't see anything wrong with it. I, I speak for God, she says. And so she just, she just kept doing it. And so 2 Peter 3, 9, I love this verse. It says, the Lord is patient toward you, not wanting any to perish, but that all should reach repentance. The fact every time we hear the gospel preached, it is another demonstration of the mercy of God, that he, he has delayed the return of his son so that someone else can be saved. It's amazing. Every time we hear the gospel preached, every time we wake up in the morning and we have, we're able to breathe again, we're alive, we should think, Man, God's given us mercy one more day. Maybe today's the day my neighbor's going to get saved. Maybe today's the day someone else out there is going to pray to receive Christ. And that's just the mercy of God. He's giving people time to repent. And we, we know at some point that time will run out. But for, for right now, he's given people time to repent. Behold, verse 
22, I will throw her. Uh, if she's not going to repent, then at some point judgment's going to come. He's, he said he will judge Jezebel and those who follow her teaching. First, he says, I will throw her into a sick bed or a bed of pain is what it means. She had sinned on a bed through immorality. So God said, Jesus says, I'm going to put her on a bed of sickness. So there's some type of illness as a result of her sin and refusal to repent. And second, those who commit adultery with her are those who follow her teaching. And, and they're going to endure some type of, of, of great tribulation, it says. Unless, you know, it's like there's still time. Unless they repent of her works. There's, there's still time to repent. So uh, church, you know, communicate this message to her. Communicate to those in your fellowship that are still are following her teaching and tell them to repent because if not, judgment is going is to come. It says, and I will strike her children dead. That is, her children are those who follow her teaching. And, and I, I will strike them dead. That is, it would not be a natural death. It would be some type of a supernatural death that they would endure. And, and all the churches, all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. You, you probably know, you, you remember that mind and heart. That goes back to Jeremiah 17, verse 10. It says, Yahweh is the one who searches the heart and tests the mind. And now Jesus here says, Jesus says, I am the one who searches the heart and tests the mind. You see, uh, her problem was she refused to repent. Her greatest sin was unbelief. Um, I was watching, a, uh, if you guys have probably heard of Rosar, Rosaria Butterfield, I believe is her name. And so she was, uh, she was a former professor at Syracuse University. She was uh, outspoken lesbian and just engaged in that lifestyle. Well, she, um, a, a pastor in the area where she was just befriended her. He had this pastor and his wife had her over for dinner one night. And so she went because she was working on an article. She needed a source. So she thought, well, hey, this guy will be my source. And um, while she was there, he began to build a relationship with her. And he said, she, she said, he did the two things no Christian should do. He didn't invite me to church and he didn't share the gospel with me on that first meeting. But what he did is built, started building a relationship with her. And it, it, to her, it communicated, you know, he's in this for the long term. He actually cares about me. He wants to get to know me. So he built a relationship with her. And over time, she repented of her sins and placed her faith in Christ. And now she's married to a pastor and she homeschools her children. And so um, you can, you can watch her, her testimony online, but it's interesting. She said, you know, he didn't point out my sins. He knew my greatest sin was unbelief. I thought that was so interesting. He could have easily said, well, you're wrong because you're doing this, this, this. Instead, he knew her greatest sin was unbelief. If she would believe in Christ, then God could t take care of the rest. And that's what happened. She got saved, and she was under conviction, and God changed her life. Um, it's just interesting. And so Jesus said, I'm the one, Jesus says, who, who knows mind and heart. Heart refers to the moral center of life, particularly in terms of our emotions and our desires. The word for mind is literally heart and refers to our deepest inner thoughts and refers to the decisions that we make. So Jesus is saying, I know your desires I know your emotions and I know the decisions that you make and you're responsible for every one of them. He says, I know all of that. I can see inside of you and I can see everything that you're doing and I'm going to hold you accountable for every decision that you make. 
So he's, the point is, church, you had better examine yourself because the judgment of God is coming. He says, I will give according to your works. Jesus doesn't show partiality because our works demonstrate our faith. So he's not playing favorites. He says, I'm going to judge based on evidence. I'm going to judge you and your life based on the evidence that you see. So if you have a relationship with Christ, then our lives should demonstrate that. Our work should demonstrate there is evidence we've placed our faith in Christ. And if there's not evidence, then we should ask, Lord, am I out of your will or have I ever really received you as my Lord and Savior? This leads us to our our main point tonight, and I've got several uh, application points. Tolerating evil may offer unity, but it leads to judgment. Tolerating evil may may offer unity, but it leads to judgment. So perhaps these believers at Thyatira thought, man, we can just coexist with this woman. We can, we can keep her happy. We'll stay in our little corner. And, and it's not going to damage the church. But Jesus said, that is the one thing I have against you. You're doing all these other things really well. But there's that one thing you're allowing. You're giving her freedom to do this in the church. And I'm going to hold you responsible for it. And so uh, years ago, this was several years ago, Dallas Mavericks made a, um, um, just a crazy trade. They traded three players and two draft picks in the middle of a season. Well, it was December, so it wasn't quite in the middle of a season. But they, they traded the, uh, made a trade with the Boston Celtics for two players. The one player they really wanted was Rajon Rondo. Okay, so he's with the Lakers now. But he goes to the, the Mavericks. The Mavericks were 20 and 7. They had the most efficient offense in the, in the NBA. They get Rondo thinking, you know, we can tolerate this guy. He has a reputation for being a divisive player, for not being the ideal team player. But somehow the Mavericks thought, we can tolerate this guy. We'll be better with him. They get Rondo, and their offense goes to 14th in the league, from 1st to 14th. And uh, they, their record with him was 22-16. and 16. They were 20-7 and seven without him. So obviously it didn't work out very well. Well, so one game, this whole thing exploded, okay? Rondo likes to call his own plays. Well, Coach Carlisle likes to call his own plays too. And so normally as the, the, coach, the player's dribbling up the court, the coach is, is making a play, and, and so uh, Rondo just ignored him. And uh, Carlisle calls a timeout, and they just have a screaming fest right there in the middle of the game. This whole thing erupted. He's on the bench the rest of the second half. Rondo played 46 games, and he was out of Dallas. They gave up five players for someone who played 46 games. Isn't that crazy? But they thought, hey, we can tolerate him. We can tolerate him. He won't affect our our team that bad. And I think it cost them a couple of years. And they're just now recovering. Um, we lived in Dallas, so I'm kind of a Mavericks fan. Uh, it was frustrating to see, why would you give up five players for and tolerate this guy? Uh, shortly after Courtney and I were married, we moved to uh, Louisville, Kentucky for school. And um, the Lord gave me a job at a secular company, that, and he gave Courtney a job as well. And so we, we worked there to get through school. And um, that first, I started in September at that company. And in December, the company had a Christmas event, a Christmas, you know, party off campus for us. And so we went, I thought, this is a great opportunity to build relationships. And uh, my boss was a believer, great man. And we thought this would be fun. So we were going to go to a play and then go to dinner afterwards. So we went to this play and it was just in a small theater and it started off really good. And um, I don't even remember what it was, what it was called, but it started off really good. But I noticed 
they started using some, some curse words. It was one, maybe one here, maybe one there. And then as the movie went along, it became incredibly profane. And it got worse and worse and worse. And by the end of this thing, it was, it was filthy. And so I, I, I thought, you know, man, should, should we just get up and leave this thing? And, um, but we were, you know, we were still new. It was my first event with this company. And I thought, no, we should probably stay. And we're going to dinner anyways afterwards. And um, that language stuck with me for a month. I thought, I can tolerate this. For a month, I'm telling you, it stung me. This, the, the uh, taking the Lord's name in vain, all that was in my head for about a month. And my greatest regret is that I didn't get up and just say, you know what, we'll, we'll meet you guys at dinner. Uh, I, just, I just can't do this. Uh, but I stuck it out and thought, well, you know, uh, we, we can tolerate it. There are things sometimes we allow in our life, and they affect us spiritually. It could be something you're watching, something you're reading, something you're not even aware of. You think, I've just, it's just become so normal. And it is affecting you, and it's robbing you of joy. And I'm telling you, those words were in my mind for at least a month, and it, 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 it just robbed me of joy. And maybe there's something in your life you think, oh, I can tolerate this. I can tolerate it. But maybe tonight Jesus is saying, no, there's something that I'm not happy with in your life. There's something that you, you're holding on to, and it's, 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 it's robbing you, and it's, it's robbing you of, of what's best. Thankfully, not everyone at Thyatira was following Jezebel. Look at verse 24. It says, but to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching. So there were some who, man, they, they weren't holding what she was offering. Uh, it says, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. Her, her teaching was demonic. It was, it was not from God. To you, I say, I do not lay on you any, any other burden. Jesus said, I, I'm not putting any other weight, any other oppression up, upon you. Uh, I'm not imposing any type of weight upon you. Jesus said, he's saying, I, you don't have to worry about going to all these feasts and, and pleasing people in these trading organizations. You, you don't have to do that. You, you, don't, you don't have to do that. You just need to live to please me, Jesus is saying. He's saying, you, you, don't, don't worry about it. I'm not, I'm not putting a burden on you. If you've placed your faith in Christ, that's all he requires. That's all that's required for salvation. Now we just live out of that relationship and live out of that freedom and serve him. So he says, hold fast. It's a command. Only hold fast what you have until I come. What do they have? They had the, the truth of the gospel. So he says, don't, don't, don't worry about getting involved in all these other things. I'm not, I'm not putting any more burdens on you. You don't have to do anything else to please me. You don't have to perform to, to, to earn my love or my forgiveness. He's just hold on to the gospel. Hold on to the, the truth, uh, the foundational truths of the faith. He's saying, church, you have everything you need. You, you don't need to do anything else. I'm already satisfied. I'm already pleased because of Christ. You only need to just live and please Jesus. It's, it's, so it's, it's freeing. Uh, he's just hold on to Christ. And um, I'm going to give you just a few application points. I'm, I, I, I phrased them in the form of a question. So here's, here's the first one. Are you maintaining a simple and pure devotion to Jesus? Are you maintaining a simple and pure devotion to Jesus? 2 Corinthians 11.3 says this, Paul wrote, But I'm afraid that as a serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere 
and pure devotion to Jesus. There's just something refreshing about simplicity. All right. Just just walk with Jesus. Just spend time with him. Just say, get up in the morning and spend time with him. Say, Father, I just I just want to obey you today. Just speak to my heart through your word and give him that time and say, the rest of this day, Lord, control me by your spirit. I, I just want to live for you. I want to honor you. So just just stay faithful to him. Just uh, it's, it's not complicated. Just keep following Jesus. Keep loving him. Keep serving him. Hold on to Christ is what, what Jesus is saying. Then Jesus said, I'm, I'm going to give you rewards. Um, have you noticed at every end of every one of these letters, Jesus talks about rewards. Remember in, um, in uh, the, the first one, the church of Ephesus, he says, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. That is the one who conquers. Man, there's a reward. Then the next one, the church of Smyrna. He says, uh, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. He said, I'll give you the crown of life. The church at, at Pergamum, he says, I'll, I'll give you some of the hidden manna. And we talked about that. And I'll, I'll give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone. Uh, so, man, there's rewards for those who stay faithful to Christ. And so here he says, to the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Remember, Pastor just talked about that Sunday. That as Christians, we're, we're going to judge. We're going to rule. We're, we, we've got authority. So he, there's the, the, uh, the Old Testament uh, patriarchs, I believe Pastor said. And then you've got the New Testament apostles. And then there's us, the, the church, believers. It says we're going to rule and with a rod of iron. I think the picture here is like of a shepherd's staff. But it, this one's in, uh, it's a rod of iron. And... Um, and I believe it's talking about the final judgment. We're going to be with Christ at the final judgment. And so it says, he will rule with a rod of iron when earth and pots are broken in pieces, even as I have received authority from my father. So there's going to be, there's going to be judgment. We're going to be, we're going to, we're going to be with Christ. Then the second, he says, I will give him the morning star. I think this is so interesting. So the verse that should come to mind for you is, remember Revelation twenty two sixteen, where Jesus says, I'm the bright morning star. So um, there's three things, I, I, there's probably more, but there's at least three things that this could mean. It could refer to Daniel 3, where the star represented the eternal life of God's people. Remember he said, you'll shine like stars. Those who are uh, lead many to salvation are wise, they will shine like stars. So he could talk about you're shining like a star in eternity. Or it could refer to a planet in our solar system. Do you know which planet's the morning star? Venus is. Venus is the morning star because it appears right before the sun comes up. So as Jesus said, I'm going to, if you conquer to the end, I'm going to give you Venus. Now, I don't think that's what he's saying. I, I think he's, I think Jesus is saying, I will give you myself. I think Jesus is saying, if you stay faithful to the end, I will give him the morning star because he's the bright morning star. Jesus is saying, hey, don't worry, all those trading guilds, all these people you feel like you have to impress, hey, don't worry about that. He's saying, hold on to me, and I will give you myself. Is there anything else greater than Jesus? What else could compare to Jesus? Who else could compare to Jesus? He said, just hold on to me, I will give you myself, and I will be enough for you, he says. Oh, it's just fascinating. So here's, here's the, um, so in the end, they would have eternal fellowship with Jesus, and we will too, all, all believers will, 
in heaven and in the new Jerusalem for all of eternity. This leads us to our second application question. Do you expect the best rewards in the next life? Do you expect the best rewards in the next life? The more we we mature in Christ, the less we should seek rewards in this life. Remember the prophet Daniel? Remember Daniel later? Remember, he went as a youth, he went to Babylon. He was taken to Babylon. Remember, he, he, God gave him favor. He became uh, very prominent politically. But remember, later in his life, when um, he, was, he was called, I believe it was Belshazzar. Called, yeah, Belshazzar needed him to interpret the handwriting on the wall. So the king offered him purple clothing, a chain of gold around his neck. He'd be third ruler in the kingdom. You remember what Daniel said? Daniel said this. Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Daniel had lived a while. He had had some earthly comfort. He said, you know what? Just, I, I, don't, I don't need that. I don't need the earthly comfort. I don't need earthly reward. Uh, just, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what it means, and let me just go about my business. I, I've already experienced that. It's not going to fulfill me. I mean, it's nice, but, uh, but as Christians, there are, we should be living for the rewards in the next life. Uh, in 2017, the Harvard Business Review published an article. It referenced a study done at a New York State hospital. So if you've been in the hospital recently, this will really encourage you. The goal of the study was to increase the frequency by which medical staff wash their hands. Okay? The medical staff was told to wash their hands, and warning signs were posted at the little hand sanitizer dispensers, you know, that are all through hospitals. Warning signs were posted there about the consequences of unsanitized hands. So it was all negative motivation. You know, like if you don't wash your hands, here's what could happen. Danger, danger, danger. This was all over the the hospital. Do you know they, they inserted cameras around every sink to monitor how often these people were washing their hands? Take a wild guess on what percentage of medical staff in the intensive care unit at this hospital in New York, we're washing their hands. 10%. 10% of medical staff, when they came out of a room, would wash their hands. And they knew. They knew the dangers. And they knew they were on camera. They knew they were being recorded. But then the hospital said, you know what? Let's employ a different strategy. Instead of this negative stuff, why don't we try something positive? So they put an electric board in the hallway And every time an employee would go wash their hands, they would come out and there would be a positive message like, good job, exclamation mark. And you know what? Over four weeks time, it went from 10% to 90%. Positive reinforcement, positive feedback. And the study showed that positive feedback was more motivating than negative consequences. When we read through Revelation, we see positive feedback. We read, Jesus says, I will give you this. I'll give you the crown of life. I'll give you the white stone. I'll give you the hidden manna. I'll I'll let you rule. I'll give you myself. I will give, give, give. It's rewards. He's telling us. And so it ought to encourage our hearts to have patient endurance, to say, man, I can make it. I I know I can make it because this life is not all that there is. There is more to come. So Jesus is saying through these rewards, he's saying, keep up the good work. Hold fast to Christ. Keep it up. Keep, keep waiting. Man, there's rewards. Just hang in there. Endure the sickness. Endure the ridicule. It's your work. Whatever it is, just hold fast to Christ. So then he, and he uh, finishes. He says, 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And that's a word for us. The, the implication is, will we listen and obey what Jesus has said? Will, will we listen? Will, will we obey? Um, we have the option. We, don't, we can refuse to repent just like Jezebel did, or we can listen and we can obey. I'm going to give you two more application points in the form of a question. Does your struggle with insignificance prevent you from living passionately for God? This is based on the first part of this passage. Does your struggle with insignificance prevent you from living passionately for God? Remember Thyatira? Small, insignificant city, yet it had the most words from Jesus. Some of you may feel insignificant for whatever reason. Maybe, you know, your parents may have told you, hey, we didn't plan for you or whatever it was. You know, maybe it's your job. You don't feel significant. But you're significant to Jesus. You're created in the image of God. He loves you. And because of that, you can live passionately for Jesus. You don't have to be held back by fear or feelings of insignificance. You can, you can be bold and passionate for Christ. So live for him. Hold fast to him. And then finally, is there anything that you are tolerating that is compromising your walk with God? Is there anything that you're tolerating that is, pro- is compromising your walk with God? Don't be fooled by the illusion of tolerance. When we tolerate evil, it, it offers unity, but it ends in judgment. In the 1960s, the coal industry was still booming in South Wales. Uh, Wales had become famous for coal mining during Britain's Industrial Revolution. And um, it, was, it was crucial to this, this small town named Aberfan, and, uh, where approximately 5,000 coal miners and their families lived there or nearby. Now, if you're watching The Crown Season 3, you've seen this, okay? This is maybe season, uh, Episode 3 or 4 or 5, something like that. Uh, I thought it was so sad, but it was interesting. Coal mining creates waste, and the excess rock was dumped in an area called a tip, okay? So there are seven tips located on the edge of this hill or on the top of the hill above the city of Aberfan in South Wales. By 1966, the seventh tip was 111 feet high, and it contained about 300,000 cubic yards of waste. Now, this tip was located above a natural spring. So over time, the residents of Aberfan grew concerned. And so they went to the National Coal Board in 1963, 1964, and they said, hey, we're really concerned about this tip up here. Is there something you could do about it? And um, they owned and operated the, the tip, and they just said, you know what? Uh, they chose to tolerate it. They didn't do anything. The residents were concerned because there was a school at the bottom of the hill with about 240 kids in this school. And so uh, the National Coal Board, they, they didn't do anything. They ignored it. On October the 21st, 1966, the students of Aberfan were in school for only half a day. Uh, midterm break was coming, half a day, man, they were out of there. It had been raining for weeks. Well, the rain liquefied all that excess wet, uh, waste on top of tip number seven. And the children had they arrived at school at 9.15. The teachers had just begun to record the children's attendance when it began. All the coal waste on tip number seven was saturated by rain, and it liquefied and began sliding down the hill. It quickly turned into an avalanche that went roaring down the side of the hill towards the school. It sounded like a jet plane. The waste traveled downhill at 11 to 21 miles per hour in waves 20 to 30 feet high. 
the avalanche of black quicksand hit the school and poured through the windows. In some places, the debris was 30 feet deep. In the aftermath of the storm, it was determined that 144 people died, of which 116 were children. Half of the village's children had been killed, just like that. A tribunal later concluded that the National Coal Board was responsible for the disaster and that the Aberfan disaster could have been prevented. The queen delayed her going eight days, and she said, I believe it was in 2002, it was her greatest regret as queen that she delayed going. They chose toleration. What about you? Is there anything you're tolerating in your life tonight? You think, maybe I need to repent. Let's ask God to help us with that. Father, thank you that you love us enough to put your finger uh, on things in our lives that are not pleasing to you. Thank you for the spirit of God. Thank you, Lord Jesus. You have eyes of fire. You, you see right through us and you know exactly what we're thinking. You know the decisions that we've made, even though no one else in here may know that. You know it. And so, Father, I pray that there's something in our life that's not pleasing to you, something that we're tolerating. I pray you give us the courage to repent. Thank you that you love us enough to repent or to give us the chance to repent. Thank you that you've given us time. You allowed us to worship together tonight so that we can be in a right relationship with you. And I thank you for your love. I thank you for your mercy. And so, Father, would you be honored in this church? I pray that the latter days of this church would exceed the works of the first. Thank you for the 40-plus years of ministry that this church has enjoyed, and many wonderful things have happened over the years. Many people have been saved and baptized here, and um, we praise you for that. We thank you for that. But we ask you would do greater works in the days ahead. So as Pastor shares vision with us, this weekend and in the coming weeks. Lord, would you give us hearts to, to listen, to be attentive, and uh, Lord, help us to obey what it is you're telling us to do. Guard us from being fearful or worried about how we're going to do it. Help us to trust you. Help us to have faith to trust you. Uh, these are great days, Father, and we thank you for each one. We pray for pastors. He travels back tomorrow. We pray that you give him the time to study that he needs and pray for deacons retreat Friday night. We pray you would just um, visit among us by your spirit. And Lord, we would just have a, a deep encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for these sweet people. Thank you for their attentiveness. And just pray we'd encourage someone as we leave. And may you be honored in our lives, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.